For any of you who know me, you know that I worked at a plant called Wilson Art for about 10 years. I started there when I was 19, right out of high school. And I kind of followed in the footsteps of my dad, who's actually still working there and has been for over 30 years. And I remember a story that my dad told me about a man that he worked with there years ago. He worked on the sander. And what the sander is, is basically a part of the assembly line process at Wilson Art where they make sheets of laminate. And these sheets of laminate, you know, they're a little bit thinner than a piece of cardboard, but they're thicker than a piece of paper. And they can range in sizes from a 4 by 8 sheet of laminate all the way to a 5 by 12 sheet of laminate. I'm talking in terms of feet here. And this man was basically working on this sander. And what the sander would do is, is you would have one person feeding the sheets of laminate into the sander. It would come through the sander onto what was called the offload table. And as the sander sheets were, or as the laminate was coming out, you had two people on the end who would then take the sheet and flip it onto a table. Now, some of those sheets could get quite heavy. And basically, you had to push it to get it to flip over. Well, this one man was telling a story. Evidently, there was a, a young lady who was working there. And she was a smaller woman, you know, probably 100 pounds or so. And she was actually helping this man flip the sheets of laminate on the offload end of the sander. Someone asked the man how his night was going. And he said, well, not too bad considering I'm flipping sheets of laminate with a 120-pound woman attached to the other end. So when you think about that, the man was having to struggle to do his job that night. Not because that young lady was, was doing anything wrong, but she just didn't happen to have the strength to be able to do that job well. But it was a struggle because even though she was there to help, she was actually making his job harder by not being able to push the sheet of laminate like she should. Last week, we began our new series, Marriage in the 21st Century, and I really wanted us to focus on marriage for the next several weeks because of the understanding that marriages everywhere are under attack today. That Satan knows that if he can destroy our marriages, that he can destroy our churches, and he can ultimately destroy our society. So last week, we talked really about the foundational part of marriage, how it began in the Bible, the foundational aspects of Adam and Eve, and how they came together as one flesh. Well, the title of the sermon today is The Struggle is Real, and I want to look through Genesis chapter 3 at Adam and Eve and some struggles that they faced as the very first married couple, because I believe that when we look at Scripture and we look at what God has for us in His Word, that it can benefit us and help us today and ultimately glorify Him. So as we read the Scripture, I want you to flip in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3, that very first book in your Bible. And we're going to read verses 8 through 10 to start us off with, but we're going to really work through the entire chapter in today's sermon. So if you will, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Follow along with me. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the gift of marriage. So God, as we go through this study today, Lord, the struggle is real. Lord, help us to glean uh, encouragement, to glean wisdom from your word, and how we can conduct our marriages in the way that you have seen fit, God. Lord, we pray, Jesus, that we would honor marriage, Lord, as you honor it, as it is the first institution found in Scripture, even before the church. Lord, we know that marriage is essential. So today, God, as we conduct ourselves in marriages, as we raise children, as we have single folks who are seeking marriage or single folks who really need to know more about what marriage is all about, God, we pray that you would enlighten us today with your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So as we go through Genesis chapter 3, we're really going to see three different struggles that Adam and Eve had right off the bat. Three different struggles that they had to work through as a married couple. We're going to see the consequences of their actions. We're going to see how God gave them the answers to their most difficult questions. So the first struggle that I want us to look at is the struggle against enemies. Adam and Eve had to struggle against enemies. And today, if you're married, or one day if you're going to get married, there are going to be enemies of your marriage that you're going to have to struggle against. Let's read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see some of these enemies that Adam and Eve had to deal with in chapter 3. So Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." I want you to consider the Great Wall of China. And I know you've heard of the Great Wall. It's one of the wonders of the world. It's a magnificent architectural feat, especially considering how old it is and when the construction of it first began. The construction actually began in the year 221 B.C. And to this day, it reaches over 13,000 miles in length. I want you to think about 13,000 miles. The wall, now if you're thinking in terms of the United States and distance from city to city, let's consider Asheville, North Carolina to Los Angeles, California. Basically, the Great Wall of China is so long that you could go from Asheville to L.A. and back three times and still not fully have covered the full distance of the Great Wall of China. From the base of the Great Wall, you see that it's about 15 to 50 feet high, depending on what location you're in where the wall is. And it says that from the base, the Great Wall rose some 15 to 30 feet above that and was topped by ramparts that were 12 feet higher than that. Also along the Great Wall, there were guard towers. And these were distributed in strategically lo- strategic locations at intervals along the entire length of the wall. So the guard towers were able to send out beacons. And what these were in the nighttime, these beacons were lights. They would light lanterns, and they would use them as signals. During the daytime, they could send up smoke signals so people could see. And basically what these beacon towers were used for was to warn other parts of the army and other parts of the wall and the fortification that enemies were encroaching on their territory. They were able to assemble their armies by looking out and knowing when an enemy was about to attack. There was actually a study done not too long ago, and it was a study to see which communication would arrive quicker. The beacon towers on the Great Wall, and they, they, they spanned 11 miles to see, basically, if this a message could reach an 11-mile distance faster than someone could drive it in a car. So which would get there first, the beacon towers or the car carrying the message? Well, the study shows that the beacon towers actually got the message over an 11-mile distance faster 
than a vehicle could drive that 11 miles. So it's absolutely technologically, strategically a genius move by the Chinese in those ancient times. So why am I talking about the Great Wall of China in terms of struggling against enemies? I want you to see the great lengths that the dynasties of China took to ensure that their country was protected and safe against enemies. And now I want you to think about our marriages. See, if we know that we are being attacked by certain enemies, don't you think that we should go ahead of the ball and we should begin to protect our marriage? See, I think a lot of times in marriages today, we focus a lot on everything else in life, and sometimes we put our marriages on the back burner. Well, what happens then is that our marriages always suffer. When you look in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to find three enemies that we as Christians all face. And you know what's interesting about Ephesians chapter 2? Is that those enemies are the very same enemies that Adam and Eve are facing in Genesis chapter 3. In other words, Adam and Eve faced the same struggles that you and I face today in our marriages. And I want to look at these three enemies because you need to know who they are, you need to mark them, and you need to be praying specifically toward the fact that God would protect you from these enemies. The first one we're going to see is Satan. Satan. All right, so go back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 here in Genesis. Here in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible begins, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? Here in the very beginning, as he had become a serpent and had taken on the likeness of a serpent, Satan was at work trying to destroy Adam and Eve and trying to destroy the beautiful marriage that God had given them. I want you to listen here in Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly as we see what Paul had to say about this same enemy. He says this, In which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Did you hear, hear there how uh, Paul referred to Satan? He said that he is the ruler of the power of air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. What was Satan trying to get Adam and Eve to do? He was trying to get them to disobey the word of God. You fast forward to Ephesians chapter 2 in this letter to the church at Ephesus in the first century, and you see that Satan is still doing the same thing. He is trying to get people to disobey the word of God. The next enemy that we're going to see there is the world. The world. In Ephesians chapter 2, that same enemy is mentioned also. It says there as we continue on, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. So here we see that there was inclinations there with the, with the people in Ephesus, that they had these inclinations, that there was a world system working that was moving them in the direction of disobeying God. We now go back to Genesis, and we see that the world is also found here trying to alter Adam and Eve and their will, or God's will for their life. We see that Eve was the first one to go about to inquire about the tree. She was the one that engaged in the conversation with the serpent. We find out later on that her influence 
And Adam's inability to say no caused Adam to sin as well. So here at work in the Garden of Eden, just like in Ephesians chapter 2, we're seeing that Satan is at work trying to thwart God's plan in Adam and Eve's life. And then we also see that the world system, basically what is society doing? What direction is society moving in? We see that that is also affecting the decision of Adam and Eve. And Adam is being pressured peer pressure into what he's done, and he's also failing to stand up against what he knows is wrong. So there we see the world at work. And then the third enemy that I want us to see here that we find in both Genesis and the book of Ephesians is the flesh. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that it talks about fleshly desires. Then you go back and you see that in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve were also dealing with fleshly desires. Whenever the serpent said in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Genesis, No, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Here we see that her fleshly desires are rising to the surface. Did you hear what Ephesians chapter 2 said? It said, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Here we see that there is no change, that from the very first marriage in the Bible to this very day, we are still dealing with the same three enemies. We are dealing and fighting and struggling against Satan. We're struggling against society and the world systems, and we're struggling against the flesh. Today in your marriage, you need to know who you're fighting against because you know what Satan likes to do? He likes to put out counterfeits. He likes to put a facade. He likes to play tricks. And what he'll convince you is, is that your enemy is your spouse. Ladies, he's going to try to convince you that your husband is your enemy. That when he leaves his socks on the floor, when he doesn't put his shoes up where they go, when he doesn't help unload the dishwasher, when he doesn't help bathe the kids, when he doesn't do what he needs to be doing, Satan is going to jump on the opportunity and he is going to try to fool you into thinking that your husband is the enemy. Men, when your wife doesn't do what you think she should do, when maybe she spends a little bit too much money, when maybe she says something around your friends that she didn't think you should say, Satan is going to trick you into thinking that your wife is the enemy. Here, the Bible is very clear about who our enemy is. I promise you, uh, married couples, your spouse is not your enemy. Today, you have three specific enemies, and I want to say it again. Satan, the world system, and your own flesh. Now, I don't want you to think that your body is inherently evil. God made our bodies, and God said that they were very good. What is evil about our flesh is what's in our heart. It's that sin nature that we all possess. Basically, that nature that lives within us that, as Ephesians 2 said, we have an inclination to do evil things. As Romans chapter 3 says, there's none righteous, no, not one, that we none of us seek after God because we, in our hearts, are evil. And that is one of our greatest enemies, is our sinful nature. So we have that great struggle against our enemies. And married couples today, I want you to fortify your marriage like China fortified it with the Great Wall. I want you to go to great lengths to protect your marriage. I want you to focus on who the enemy is so that you in turn can pray to the Father who is above all, who can give you victory over your enemies. The second struggle that I want us to see that Adam and Eve faced was the struggle against shame. 
the struggle against shame. So we see there in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, the Bible says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here the reason that Adam and Eve scurry and run when God comes into the garden is because they are ashamed. They have done something that they are now embarrassed about. They have done something that they know is wrong, but yet they did it anyways. There was a story of an old godly pastor who once told a personal story about when he was newly married. He had lived a very wild life before marrying his wife and was always ashamed to tell her what he had done in the past. He didn't want anything to come between his wife and him. However, he also understood that if he didn't tell her that she would find out by some other means at some point. So he decided to write down all of the things he had done. He, for some reason, lacked the bravery to tell her face to face. So instead, he asked her to sit while he read. Without looking at her, he asked her what she thought about it. She told him, there isn't anything you could share with me that just by you sharing it wouldn't cause me to love you more. Now that is an inspiring story. And when we think about marriage, we realize that shame is certainly a factor. That when we are trying to live in a beautiful relationship in covenant love before our God with our spouses, that shame is going to creep up consistently throughout our marriages in a way that tries to divide us. See, Satan is known as the great accuser. And what Satan will do is, is he will bring up your past as a way to bring about guilt, as a way to cause you to fall. Now, shame is a real thing. Shame is a byproduct of sin. And shame is certainly something that is beneficial in our understanding of what is right and wrong. However, God does not want us to live in shame. Not because of our goodness, not because we don't deserve to live in shame, but because he made a way for us not to feel our shame anymore. As a matter of fact, he took on our, our shame. He took on my shame when he hung on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this, talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself, I want you to list this, bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him and we are healed by his wounds. Did you hear there how he was despised and rejected? Now I want you to think about this for a moment. I've alluded to this before, but it's important to remember that the cross was not something of glory. The cross was something of shame. It was reserved for the vilest of criminals during the Roman Empire. When someone was sent to be crucified on a cross, the intent of the cross was to bring about shame 
and suffering beyond human comprehension. That's why they elevated the people up on a cross. That's why they stripped them naked. That's why they beat them before so that they could be risen above everyone else so everyone could put their eyes upon the shameful person that was hanging on that cross. Well, do you realize that Jesus took your shame when he hung on the cross? Jesus took your shame and he bore it. He took it to the grave and he rose again victorious so that we could have victory over our shame. When in marriage, when it comes to thinking about our past, when it comes to thinking about our failures and our struggles and our sins, marriage was intended to be a relationship of transparency. One thing that I always try to do in premarital counseling is I will always in the first week encourage the couple that wishes to be married to take some time alone with their uh, proposed spouse and talk about the things they've done in the past. Now, I'm not talking about in detail, comb over every single thing that's ever happened, but I always encourage them, if you've had any sexual relationships before marriage, if you've ever been sexually abused, if you've ever been addicted to prescription drugs or addicted to pornography, these are some things that are good to share with the one you wish to marry before marriage because what you want to do is, is you want to begin your marriage on a good footing and a good foundation of 100% transparency. So that when you're married, and even after you're married, if you mess up and if you make a mistake and if you do something that's not right, you don't have to just live in shame about that. But you need to have the ability and the understanding with your spouse that you can immediately go to them and you can share with them what's going on. Because shame has no place in marriage. Maybe you are someone out there, as a child, maybe you were abused. And maybe that's something that you've never shared with anyone. Today you're married and you've never shared that with your spouse. You know, a very liberating thing for you to do is to, to do business with God and say, God, give me the strength to share my struggle with my spouse. Give me the strength to be transparent about what I've come from and what I've been through. Maybe you've been addicted to pornography, men. Maybe, maybe you have struggled with that for years, but yet you've never revealed that to your spouse. The healthy thing to do is to reveal that. The more accountability that you can have, the more transparency that you can have in marriage, the more beautiful your marriage will become and the more that it will flourish. Wasn't it awesome that, that godly pastor I talked to you about how his wife responded to all that he had done? I mean, he listed it out and he read it item by item by item. And at the end, it wasn't, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you kept that from me. She simply showed him grace. There is no better way to show the world and to show your spouse the love of Christ than when they mess up that we show grace, just like the Lord Jesus showed us. The third struggle that I want us to see here, as Adam and Eve struggle with shame because of their sin in their marriage, we also see that another struggle that they dealt with was a struggle against the curse. And that's the third struggle that we're going to see here with Adam and Eve, the struggle against the curse. And we're going to find that in verse 14. Now here, basically, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've gone through this period of shame with God. They've tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves to cover up their sin as opposed to being transparent with it. And now comes the time when the consequences are dealt out. You know, that's the amazing principle that we find in Scripture. Basically, because God created the world and He created everything in it, 
and he created us in his image. He created the world system to work in a way that when someone sins, that when someone does wrong, there are always consequences. And today I think we live in a day and age where people are trying to do away with the consequences of sin. They're trying to override the consequences of sin. But you never quite can do that. Sin will always cost you something. And here Adam and Eve felt the full brunt of the cost of their sin. So beginning in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust." Today, just to kind of put this in perspective, a curse is kind of like a limp, right? When you think about a limp, someone who has a limp, let's say you have a limp and you're about to run in a relay race. The cards are already stacked against you. You've already got some sort of an ailment that is going to cause you not to be able to perform as well. Well, the curse is the same way. Another good analogy, I think, is the saying, the house always wins. Now, we know as Christians and as Bible believers that gambling is wrong, but it's no question that in casinos, they are designed for the house to win most of the time. They're designed to favor the house itself and not those who are playing. So in other words, if you think you're going to go to Harris and you're going to go to the blackjack table and you're going to be able to somehow put all these odds into your favor because you're smart and you think you've got it figured out, you are sadly mistaken because I promise you, the moment you walk in the casino, the cards are already stacked against you and you're going to struggle. The curse is the same way. Did you know that even a precious child at the moment of conception has to deal with the curse of sin? And I'm not saying that little child is a, a sinful person or a wicked person, but they have that seed of sin nature embedded in them. They live in a human body that has been cursed by sin, a body that begins to age the moment it's conceived, a body that one day, uh, hopefully after many years, will pass away. We all have to endure the curse of sin. And today, as we conduct our marriages and as we try to have a godly marriage, the curse is still struggling against us. As a man and a woman married in covenant marriage, the curse of sin is going to plague you time and time again until you claim the victory in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 tells us about the curse of the woman, of Eve. Remember Eve ate of the fruit? She gave it to her husband. Well, the consequences for her sin was this. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. I'm not going to say I understand that because I don't, but ladies, I'm sure you know the pains of your labor if you've had children. You will bear children with painful effort. And I want you to listen to this last sentence here. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. What does that mean exactly? Well, if you think about the fact that women had been given the right to vote in the 20th century, thank God for that. 
We know the Bible teaches that women are fully equal in value to men. We believe in a complementarian view of men and women in that men and women are equal in value, but we have different God-given roles. And we're thankful for that. But at the curse, there was something embedded in the heart of woman that caused her to struggle against the authority that God had given her husband. And that's where today even we're seeing there is a great rise in what's known as the women's liberation movement. And it's really at its peak. And, and what's, what's being understood is, is that there is no differentiating roles between men and women. Society is saying that men and women should have the exact same roles, the exact same opportunities, the exact same choices, and everything should be exactly the same. Well, we know that God did not design things to be that way. And as a man and a woman are married, there is going to be something in you ladies from time to time when you are not submitting yourself to the Lord that's going to cause you to want to lash out in rebellion against your husband and against the God-given role of authority that he has. And what that is, is that's the curse. That's the curse working in you. That's the sinful curse of fallen humanity that is working in you to try to overcome your husband. Now, remember what I said. Your enemy is not your husband. Satan is your enemy. The world's system is your enemy. Your flesh is your enemy. But your husband is not. And when we keep that in perspective, we realize that the curse is what's playing out in us. And that when we see that, ladies, I pray that God will give you the courage to submit to the authority of your husband. And we know that when husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, it's not so difficult for a woman to submit to a husband who loves her and nurtures her and provides for her. We see in verse 19, 17, I'm sorry, where the man was cursed. Beginning in verse 17, God says this to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you do not eat from it, the ground is cursed, which means that when you eat, you'll have to uh, uh, conduct yourself in painful labor all the days of your life. And it says that the earth will produce thorns and thistles. And I want you to think about how, how the gravity of this situation. Adam and Eve were used to a perfect world. They were used to a to a, to an earth that provided food without any type of effort. All they did was to care for it and cultivate it, but it grew in, in plentiful amounts. Well, now you go from paradise of the Garden of Eden to a world that does not want to uh, put forth and produce fruit, to a world that grows weeds, that grows thorns, that grows thistles, and this struggle is becoming more and more large to Adam and what he was going to have to do to provide for his family. Today, men, it's no secret. Finances can be one of the most burdensome things to a man. As we know that God has given us the ultimate role of providing for our families, and I'm not saying that it's wrong for a woman to make more money than a man. I think that is wonderful if that's the case. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is the man's responsibility to provide for his family. And men, many times we are under great stress to make sure that we can provide. And the interesting thing is providing for your family does not come easy. It takes hard work work, sometimes painful work. It takes dedication. It takes getting up and working and providing when you don't feel like it. When we go back and we look at this, it's the work is not the curse, but the difficulty in the work is what is the curse. And we are experiencing that day in and day out. Married couples, you are having to struggle against the curse. Now, here's the whole question, okay? So we know that we've got a struggle against the curse, that we're struggling against shame, and that we're struggling against enemies. Well, the whole question is, how can I ultimately, as a spouse, 
as someone in a married couple, how can I overcome these struggles? Listen, I didn't have to convince you at all that you're, there are struggles in your life, that there are struggles in your marriage. We all face them. So what's the answer to it all? The last point that I want to make today in this sermon is the struggle overcome by the Savior. The struggle is overcome by the Savior. We find that in verses 20 through 24. Read with me there in Genesis chapter 3, but beginning in verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life to eat and live forever. So the God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword against the east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life. Here in the midst of probably one of the most depressing chapters in all the Bible, there are two verses of hope. But before I get to those two verses, I want to tell you a story. There was once a, a story about two different mothers, okay? They were both prostitutes, and they had both gotten pregnant and given birth. They happened to live in the same house due to the nature of their lifestyle. One of the babies died. The problem at hand was that both mothers were contending that it was their baby who lived, and it was the other mother's child who died. The one mother said one night during sleep, the other woman rolled over on her baby and suffocated it unintentionally. Then she came and took her dead baby, placed it in my arms, and took my baby pretending that it was hers. I woke up and realized the baby in my arms was dead and that it wasn't my child at all. Then the other mother claimed that the living child was hers the whole time and nothing like that had taken place. There was obviously a struggle here between these two women of epic proportions. Can you imagine? This was a time before Mari and Dr. Phil. We all know that you are the father, right? You are the mother. Well, there was no way to do that back then when this story took place. There was no maternity test that could be taken. What would be the key to resolving this conflict, do you think? Well, the judge who was seeing this case and trying to settle this argument, knew just what to do. He said, since neither of you can prove the living child is yours, give me a sword and we will cut the child in half. Half for the one mother and half for the other. The real mom cried out and said, please don't take the child's life. Just let the other woman have the child. The mom who was accused of switching the babies said, that's a great idea. If I can't have the child, nobody can have the child. At that moment, the judge knew who the mom was. He settled the dispute. He fixed the problem. If you're not familiar with that story, that's actually King Solomon who was judging that situation back in 1 Kings. And when that happened, the solution was found. So now we're asking, what's the solution for this epic struggle that takes place in our marriages? These struggles against the enemy and the struggle against all that we have to deal with as married couples. Well, there's two verses in chapter 3, as I alluded to before, that are going to give us the answer. The first one is in verse 15 of chapter 3. Why don't we go back to that verse quickly? I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here's the key. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
Here we have the first mention of the coming Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Satan is being judged. And what God is saying is, is there's going to be one that comes one day. He's going to crush your head. Now, yeah, you're going to cause him some pain and you're going to strike his heel. But ultimately, the Redeemer is going to crush your skull. Here we have the first prophecy of the coming Jesus Christ. When he comes and he dies on the cross, he was buried and he rose again. He crushed the head of Satan by winning the victory over death, hell, and the grave for all those who trust in Christ and sealing the fate of Satan in the lake of fire forever and ever. Then we go to verse 21 and we see another glimmer of hope here in one of the most dark chapters of all the Bible. Verse 21 says this, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. I wonder why the Lord did not see those fig leaves that Adam and Eve had originally put together to cover them as sufficient. Well, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 teaches us there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So here in chapter 3 of Genesis, the third chapter in the Bible, we have the first prophecy of the coming Messiah, who himself would become our lamb, who himself would die on the cross and shed his blood for our sins so that we could have victory over the struggles that we face as married couples, so that we could have victory over our selfishness and over our sin and over our curses and over all that comes against us. Today, married couple... The struggle is certainly real, but the gospel is the answer. The gospel will overcome the struggle with our enemies, whether it be Satan, whether it be the world, or whether it be our own fleshly desires. The gospel will overcome the struggle with our shame because we know that Jesus bore our shame on the cross. Today, shame has no place in your marriage. Full transparency is what you need to embrace. Also, the gospel overcomes the struggle with the curse. We know that Jesus became cursed for us. The Bible teaches us that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. And Jesus indeed died on that tree that day on Mount Calvary so that my sin and your sin could be forgiven, so that the curse of sin would not overwhelm us and ultimately take us to hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes. Today, I hope that your marriage is flourishing, but I'm not going to be naive and think that none of you aren't having any issues. I'm not going to be naive and say that your marriage is probably just a bed of roses. We all struggle, and, and that's understandable. But I want you as a married couple to get serious about your relationship with your spouse. I want you to get serious like that Great Wall of China, and I want you to protect the beauty of that covenant relationship. And I want you to realize that Jesus has set your husband or your wife apart for you so that you can love them and nurture them and be there for them. Today, I hope that this message touched your heart, and I pray that our marriages in our church flourish. I pray that the marriages of our community flourish, and I pray that any single person considering marriage will consider strongly the struggles that they will face in married life, but that they can go into it with joy and peace knowing that Jesus has already won and defeated our enemies. Today, maybe this is your first time interacting with Pole Creek in a worship service. We want to encourage you to reach out to us because, listen, we want to minister to you. And sometimes it can be difficult over live stream feed because we're not sure exactly who all is watching. But we want to give you a gift, and we just want you to know that we, we love you, we care about you, and we're thankful that you decide to worship with us. So all you have to do is text the word NEW to the phone number 828-373-1940. 
We'd love to send you a gift and reach out to you. You can also use that same phone number if today maybe you realized, I don't know Jesus. And that curse of sin that you're talking about, Ben, I have never gotten victory over that curse because I have never trusted the one who took the curse for me. All you have to do is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Confess your sins to Him. Say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need you. Jesus, I know that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. Today I'm going to turn from my sin and Jesus, I'm going to turn to you and trust you. If you do that today, I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, He will save you and your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you do that, or if you want to know more information about what that means or how to do that, we ask you to simply text the word SAVED to that same phone number I mentioned earlier, 828-373-1940. You may be there as well, and you're saying, you know, all that's going on with COVID-19 and this isolation and, and me not to get be able to be around people, I really need some fellowship, and I really want to connect with some people who are godly influences. Well, today we'd love to get you connected to a small group. We'd love to even share with you what it means to join our church. So with that same phone number that I mentioned before, text the word CONNECT, and they'll get sent a link. It'll ask for some information, and we'll be sure to reach out to you and give you all the information that you may need to be able to connect with our church. Again, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. I want to thank all of our church family for your faithfulness to continue giving to the ministries of Pole Creek. We have been able to continue our ministries even through this difficult crisis because of your faithfulness. And we pray that you'll continue to give. You can continue to give even securely or remotely by going on our website, going to the menu, and clicking on the Give link. Again, thank you so much for your faithfulness as we dismiss in prayer. God, we love you so much, and God, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful, God, that in Genesis chapter 3 that you laid out all the things that we need to watch out for, the struggles that were certain to come our ways, God, the struggles that would always impede our marriages. But, Lord, we know that embedded in the curses of Genesis 3, embedded in the darkness of Genesis 3, we find hope in the coming Messiah who came and died on a cross and rose from the dead. We find hope in the blood that was shed on the cross to fully satisfy your wrath against sin as we know that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And God, today as we are uh, finalizing this sermon, God, I pray that anyone listening who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would make it as real to them as possible, that they would see their need for you and that they would trust you today. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.